how much does God love you? How much does God love you? If you were here last week, you heard Patrick preach. Thank you, by the way. Great job, Patrick. Uh, How much does God love you? It's a pretty abstract question. We say it all the time, but how much? Because how do you even measure love? Um, My daughter, if you ask my daughter how much she loves me, at least this is what she tells me all the time. Do you know how much she loves me? So much. That's how much she loves me. And that's a lot. That's like this big, right? But how much is that? That's not feet or inches or pounds. It's difficult to measure love. And so how do we measure love? With actions, right? Isn't that how we measure love? What am I willing to do to show my love? Am I going to sacrifice? Am I going to do different things to show my love? That's how we quantify our love. And so instead of measuring our love with some sort of scale, we measure by what we do. For example, I showed my daughter how much I loved her yesterday by sitting through two entire American Girl movies. Have you ever watched American Girl movies? They were better than I expected, to be real honest. But, uh, you know, we do that. And I've watched any number of really poorly made Netflix shows made clearly for teenage girls. But I've done that. Why? Because I love my daughter. You show your love through your actions. And so you can measure someone's love by what sacrifices you're willing to make or what things you're willing to do in order to like accommodate them or just put yourself out for them. And if you've been around church for a long time, when I ask you the question, how much does God love you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Probably something about Jesus, maybe. Jesus is God's greatest expression of love to you and to me. And if you don't know the story of Jesus, don't worry. We're going to get to the story of Jesus uh, a little later, and we're going to get to it every single week because that's like our biggest thing we talk about at church. But what, how much does God love us? One of the most important verses in the Bible to me that under, explains that is from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to this. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So that is a picture of God's love. How much does God love you? Well, he was willing to come to earth as a human being and die for us. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. And that's the biggest part of the thing. But the message of God's love can often be like any other love that we have. Because like when you're first in love with someone, you're, you're infatuated. You're deeply in love and you're willing to do anything. You love them so much. And we see this in the life of maybe newlyweds. We have this period we call the honeymoon period. And yes, that has implications of like newness. But really what the honeymoon period means is like buckle up because real life is coming, right? That's a phrase that we use. Like the honeymoon period is like this short reprise from real life. And then real life happens. That's the honeymoon period. We are willing to do a crazy amount of sacrifice for our spouse, like pick up laundry that's not even ours, right? And do dishes that we didn't even eat off of because we love you so much. But what happens when we get more and more comfortable with love? We get lazy about our sacrifice. And that's why when you look 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years into a marriage, the conversations look differently. Pick up your underwear, Ah, am I a slave around here, right? Because we're done with that. Because the more comfortable we get, the less likely we are to take some of those sacrificial actions. And there's lots of reasons for that. It's not all bad. How much does God love us? I think that the same thing that happens in our human relationships, that comfortable, uh, that complacency, that thing that the longer we're in love with God, the more likely we are to just be a little bit lazy with our actions towards God. I think that's true as well. And so the question is often not how much does God love us because his love for us doesn't change and his actions never deplete 
But what does it look like for us to love him back? So, hold that thought. Uh, Today we're starting a new teaching series together that honestly is unlike anything I've ever done myself before. And so I hope that you'll buckle up with me and enjoy this journey because I've got a confession to make. It's a real life confession. There are parts of the Bible that I do not like to read. (laughs) I just skip over them because they're boring and or I don't understand them or they're not accessible to me. And so, yeah, I find that I return to comfortable places in the Bible. I love Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's awesome. But then there's portions of the Bible. I don't know how much time you spit in Leviticus. But you're just there and you're just like, whoa, man, I don't know where to take this. And so if I'm honest, there are parts of the Bible that I just kind of skip over most of the time because it maybe doesn't hit home or it's foreign to me or I just forget to look at it. But today I want to step into one of those sections and I want to do it with you. And it's a section known as the Minor Prophets. Um, Minor prophets. I have zero data on this, okay? I didn't do any surveys at all, but I am almost positive. I would almost bet money on this that it is the least led, the least read portion of the Bible. I think that most Christians are just like, mm, yeah, somebody else will read that one day. I, I, am, am I alone on that, or is it you too? Like, it, have you spent much time in the minor prophets? Uh, did you know there was a section of the Bible called the minor prophets? There is, and it's actually a really important part of biblical history, and it's a really important thing to learn from. And because it's a little bit different from the rest of Scripture, I think we're, we're real inclined to skip it. The Minor Prophets are 12 tiny little books at the end of your Old Testament. So I want to encourage you to grab a Bible right now. We've got free Bibles we give away every week if you need one, or if you just need to borrow one, grab it off of that shelf back there. This is definitely going to be one of those series where you're going to re- want to bring your Bible, because uh, if you have a hard time finding books of the Bible, um, this is a good time to get to a section you don't look at very often and remind yourself what's in there, or maybe learn for the first time. Flip to the book of Hosea. If you don't know where Hosea is, flip to the very front at the index and look, and it'll tell you what page it's on. Look at Hosea. It's a short book of the Bible. And while you're turning there, because you might need a minute, I want to give you a little bit of background on the minor prophets. So first of all, what is a prophet anyway? So when I ask the average, I don't know, American, especially American Christian, what is a prophet? I think that I would get a variety of answers, but I think maybe one of the most common answers is the concept that a prophet is similar to like a fortune teller. Prophets see the future, right? This is what I learned from Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, at least. Like, prophets tell the future. That's what in many cultures a prophet does, but that's not actually the primary role of a prophet when we talk about a biblical prophet. Um, Instead, in the context of the Bible, a prophet is someone who has, first of all, some sort of encounter with God. They've encountered God. Uh, He has spoken in them in some tangible or intangible way, whether it's through an audible voice or just through some amazing moment they had or a dream that they had. They have an encounter with God. And through that encounter with God, they leave with a message. So primarily, a prophet is a messenger. They've got a message from God in some way. In a very real way, a prophet is similar to many preachers in history, pastors, preachers. Someone who just has a message, and I want to share it with God's people. And this messenger would generally have one of three different types of messages. Sometimes all three, sometimes two of the three. And the three prominent ways a prophet in the Old Testament would come to the people is with a message of either A, accusation, like, can you believe what you've done? What have you done? That's accusation. Uh, a message of repentance, that's, that is uh, throughout the entire narrative of the prophets. Repentance is, by the way, it's kind of a a churchy word, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. Repentance simply means directing your heart back to God. So whether it's a 180 degree turn to God or just a 
two-degree turn to God, I'm turning my heart towards God. That's repentance, and that's like one of the primary messages of the prophets, accusation, repentance. Or thirdly, a message that announces some sort of consequence, a punishment, something to look out for. Ooh, got something in my throat. So that's a consequence. And so many times in the prophets, we get this idea of um, the day of the Lord. You ever heard that phrase? And so when a prophet talks about a day of the Lord, what he's foreshadowing is a consequence. And sometimes, almost always, actually, in the Old Testament prophets, on the Old Testament prophecies, these are very uh, relatively soon days of the Lord. These are moments where God is going to act because of something. But also because they would use kind of this cosmic imagery and this poetry to describe what was going to happen to the people, the day of the Lord. There were also these uh, nuances that spoke of a day of the Lord to come. And in the second kind of day of the Lord, there were these, you know, these images of a kingdom that would not end. And a king that would always be enthroned, a savior. These days of the Lord became the basis of, uh, thank you, Philip, the modern, the, 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 these, these day of the Lord came as the basis of like, um, the talk about the Messiah. So when you hear about the Messiah in the Bible, it's because the prophet spoke about a day when someone was going to come, a representative from God, a chosen one from God, to come and bring this day of the Lord. Uh, how did they do prophecy? Well, there was two major ways that they did prophecy, okay? Number one is like your public speaker kind of guy. This is going to be a person who's going to stand in front of a group of people and they're going to give a speech, okay? And they're going to be kind of like a preacher or a political leader or some kind of general or something that's just going to get up and say some things. Or they were doing some kind of like artistically weird expressive way. There's some weird moments in the prophets. I mean, there's this one dude who just walks around naked for a long time. And I guess I got people's attention. I mean, it certainly get my attention. He's like, what? And he's like, God told me something. And then he talked. Uh, some, there was this one guy who just he had some people tie him up, and he laid on his side, and he just laid on his side, looking at a mound of dirt, and, and, and cooked his food on a pile of feces. That's what he did. And that was his way of getting God's message across. This is in the Bible, by the way. So if you didn't read that, it's in there. That's in the book of Ezekiel. And so you just keep on learning all these things. God had a lot of different ways to speak to his people. People would have an encounter with God. And they would bring that message to him. One last thing. Why are we calling them the minor prophets? Are there major prophets? Yes. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't. Minor is an unfortunate word uh, in this setting. In old times, minor just meant small. Major means big. So these are small books. Uh, Some of them just one chapter long. The book Hosea that we're looking at today is 14 chapters long, but they're very short chapters. And so as a whole, they're short books. So that's why they're called minor prophets. There are some major prophets. We've got some really long prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. All right, so that's the background on the prophets. You just had a full uh, survey course on what it means to be a prophet. We're going to jump in today to the book of Hosea. So if you've already opened up to chapter 1, verse 1, let's get into that. Hosea was written in about the 800s BC, so we're talking 800 years before the life of Jesus. Uh, it's fairly contemporary to like the life of King David, and by fairly, I mean within like 100 years. David was dead before 
before uh, Hosea comes along. But this is how long ago it was. This is in a time period where the nation of Israel is actually divided into two kingdoms. There was kind of a civil war between the two of them. And so they divided into a southern kingdom uh, called Judea and the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And they had two different kings and two different sets of laws. And they had, it, it led to a lot of conflict between the nation of Israel because they were divided in half. And you're going to see that in chapter 1, verse 1, because he's going to kind of give some place markers by telling you who was king in these two kingdoms at the time period when Hosea prophesies. Are you guys ready? We're about to read a minor prophet together, okay? Can we do this? This is really cool because I don't know how often it is that we jump into these kind of books together, but we're going to learn a lesson that I think is very seldom dived into. We're going to be doing that actually for the next several weeks. So here we go. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Abiri, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, These are kings of Judah. Okay, this is the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. There's two kingdoms. By the way, Hezekiah, my all-time favorite Old Testament king. He's the man, uh, one of the the greatest king they ever had. And then, during the reigns of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So we're going to list one king of the northern kingdom. So he's giving these things not because we as modern readers really care, but because people who really tuned in with Jewish history would know, oh, and this is going to line up with stories that happen actually in the book of 1 Kings. And so that's, uh, or is it 2 Kings? It's in the Kings, you get the stories. And so when you get the Kings, you can lay it over other stories in the Bible. They're history markers. We know from the context of other stories that these Kings presided over times of very evil acts in the life of the Israelites. Okay, for example, uh, they're beginning to form alliances with evil kingdoms, namely the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and they're coming alongside because no longer are they trusting in God like they have for so long. They want to trust in the might and the wealth and the military strength of allies that aren't God. So that's one thing that starts to pull them away. They were also actively worshiping Canaanite gods. Now, this is something that happens all throughout Jewish history, and I can't express to you how bad this was for the people. The Canaanite gods, namely the big three, Baal, Molech, and Asherah, Molech was worshipped in one way by sacrificing your children to him. That's bad. He was a god of war. And then we've got Asherah and Baal, who are Baal or Baal, who are both uh, involved with fertility, and so there's all kind of sexual and promiscuous and immoral things that happen in the worship of these God and goddess. And so it's like, it's a big deal. They're doing that. But not only that, they've stooped to a place where like, they're allowing that to happen in the temple courts. The place where you're supposed to worship Yahweh God. In fact, they're just mixing in their God Yahweh with like all the other regional gods. And so there are some who are like, yeah, we still worship Yahweh. And we also worship Moloch because he's our God of war. And we worship Baal and we worship Assyria. This is starting to get really bad for the nation of Israel. So as a result, the people had stopped pursuing a godly virtue as a culture. And this is where God really hurts the most. What God called them to be was a nation that sought mercy and justice and love instead They were a nation of oppression, slavery, greedy, evil. So you're going to see all that come up again and again in the Minor Prophets. So when Hosea jumps into verse 2, I want to remind us of our initial question. How much does God love us? 
The nation of Israel has strayed so far. So it comes with this crazy object lesson. Check it out, chapter two, uh, chap- verse 2, chapter 1. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, listen to what God called Hosea to do, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now that little sentence is the whole thesis of the book of Hosea. If you've ever heard this story, uh, maybe you know what's coming, but if you've never heard the story of Hosea, can you fathom the idea of God coming to someone and saying, I want you to marry a promiscuous person. And I want to let you know, in our NIV that I'm reading right now, the New International Version, the word promiscuous is actually like a really uh, kind and, you know, rated G word. The, the word that would be better used here would be prostitute. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And so like, this, this is Hosea's calling. His, why? He said, because my people have been like that. They've been promiscuous. They've been seeking other gods. They've been selling themselves away to other nations. And I want to teach you something. So this is the object lesson. God asks Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. And then he makes a very important point. Verse 3, he says, well, the point happens through the children. Verse 3 says, so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. These children become vital to the story. They're going to be three. The Lord said to Hosea, call the firstborn son, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. You guys remember the story of Jezreel, right? No, no, we don't know what that story was. We don't have a lot of details about it, but this is something that you need to know. This would be like me asking you to name your child 9-11, okay? Like this is amazingly bad event that happened, this massacre that happened, and he's like, you had your firstborn child with a promiscuous woman, named this child Jezreel, because I want you to, I want people to remember that terrible event every time they say this kid's name. What? I gotta tell you, when you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you come up to moments, you're like, I thought I understood God, (laughs) but I don't understand why God would have people do this. Let me just tell you this, okay? I was having a long conversation with Joe about this this week. I was like, I, I, I struggle with it. God does what he wants to do, okay? So that's the answer to that question. He has reasons, okay? I don't know what they are. It's because this is an object lesson, and he's going to teach something much bigger. There's another child that's born, verse 6. Gomer conceived again, gave birth to a daughter this time. The Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. What a name. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them so that's pretty brutal naming your kid not loved Uh, then a third child is born verse 8 after she had weaned lo ruhama gomer had another son and the lord said call him lo ami which means not my people for you are not my people and i am not your god and that's where the hammer drops god is using the life of hosea as an object lesson to explain what it's been like for him to be the God of these promiscuous people. And we don't have many more details about their marriage. Actually, I don't think we have any more details about their marriage except for the next little story that I'm going to tell. But we see that God has Hosea do some things that, let's be honest, we wouldn't wish that on our worst enemies to go off into this like unhappy marriage. And that's basically chapter one of Hosea. Isn't it great? Isn't it a great book? 
read this tonight at bedtime. Let's keep moving and find out what's going on here. So chapter 2 picks up. We're not going to read chapter 2. I do encourage you to read it. It's very well written. It's, it's poetic. And, but basically, it's a, it, it's a sermon that Hosea preaches where he's basically being the voice of God. And he's describing what it's been like for God to try to love Israel. It's like you've been like an unfaithful spouse. He speaks to the children of Israel um, as if they were born out of wedlock. He's like, you know, I knew the children. I knew my children. You guys are not my children. I don't know who your daddy is, but I have not been your father, right? So this is like really heavy language. And then he mourns the brokenness that happens there. He's like, I, I hate to see what's happened. It's one of those days. You guys are doing great listening to me cough. And so it's here where we realize that like this whole point of Hosea being in this marriage is really God's broken heart. Like, coming out in the form of this really weird scenario, how much does God love us? Like, how much do you have to put up with with people? You ever had a really hard relationship that you're like, how much more do I have to put up with you? How many more times are you going to break my heart? How many times are you going to turn your back on me? And through this story, though through chapter 2, it's pretty bleak, and we're like, hey, man. How much does God love? Does he even love us? When we hit chapter 3, something huge happens because it's really the turning point of the story. And in this very ancient way of narrative, it hits a home run as to what God wants us to do. Chapter 3, verse 1. So then the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So something happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and this is where I'm going to read between the lines. Gomer, his wife, has run off. She was a promiscuous woman. She had it in her lifestyle to not be faithful. And there's a moment where she leaves, and she's gone. And so God tells Hosea, listen, she's left you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man, isn't an adulteress. But I want you to love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I love some raisin cakes. What's that about? Uh, raisin, cakes, uh, raisin cakes was a common offering you would make to a pagan god. And so to those people, when you say raisin cakes, immediately they're like, oh, I get it, raisin cakes. But if you're going to go to the house of worship of, of Baal or Molech or Asherah, one of the offerings you might bring is one of these baked goods, a raisin cake, uh, a sweet thing, a delicacy, something I'm going to bring. And so God is like, listen, I know you've been running off with other gods and you've been taking them, your raisin cakes. But here's what I want to do. I want to show you my love again. Hosea, go get your wife. They have turned to these demonic gods, Baal, Molech, Asherah. I told you they sacrificed children in the name of Molech. If you look at the story of Hezekiah, you know how Hezekiah became king? Because his older brother, who should have been king, was sacrificed to Molech. Like that hits home. That's like from the royal family they're doing this. One of the major ways to worship these other two gods was through all types of immorality. In fact, they would go wish, worship what was called a temple prostitute. Go visit him or her and perform acts that were immoral with them. In the sight of the people and in the sight of their God. And they did it in acts of worship to these pagan, demonic deities. And God sits by and he watches his covenant nation. The nation that he brought out of nothing from the seed of the guy Abraham. 
He grows them into a people. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved there. But God, through Moses, delivers them from Egyptian slavery, brings them into freedom, establishes them as a nation, gives them leadership, gives them boundaries, gives them lands, makes them victorious in battle. You are my people. You are my one true love. And now you're off taking raisin cakes with somebody else? How much does God love us? How much does he have to put up with this? And so God is like, listen, you've run out on me over and over and over again, but Hosea, go get your wife, because I want to show you what it means for me to love my people. Verse 2 says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and about a homer and a lethic of barley, and then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. First, husbands, wives, can you imagine having to go after your spouse, and when you find them, they're so blatantly cheating on you that you've got to go into someone else's house to find them. And when you get there, you've got to pay their going rate to get them back. This is the story of Hosea, but this is the story of God and his love for us. That he would come and pay this price because he loved us. Hosea is going to go on for 11 more chapters and he's going to do some prophesying. He's going to do the things prophets do. He's going to call out the nation of Israel. He's going to call them back to repentance. He's going to say, turn your hearts to God. And and we're not going to read all that right now. I highly encourage you to check this out. This is one of the longer minor prophets. But it's the picture in the first three chapters that live with us today because The truth is, and I think you're picking up on it, we're not all that different than Gomer, than the nation of Israel. We may not use raisin cakes. Little Debbie makes a pretty nice one. But we certainly have the propensity to just walk out on our God over and over and over. And we walk into the loving arms of something else. How often do we find ourselves in our lowest moments of weakness when we're beat from the day, when we're just out of it, and what do we turn to for strength and comfort and guidance? Netflix and Candy Crush, and we veg out on a stupid screen that gives us no life as we bow down and present our raisin cakes to the app developers. I'm serious, guys. We just zombify our brains, and we just don't deal with it, and God is like, hello, You had a hard day? Talk to me. (laughs) Sing a song to me. Go speak to others who know me. Or how many times do we go days, I'm talking days and days, without even a significant moment of worship to God? I was up in a summer camp two weeks ago. I was up about an hour west of Asheville, beautiful in the mountains just off of uh cold mountain you might remember a movie called cold mountain we were literally on cold mountain and it was a boy scout camp and there were several moments where i'm just walking down these trails and i was by myself and it was quiet and i'm hearing birds and all kinds of beautiful things and and i had this realization that god was with me he's he never left but so much noise in my life that I didn't even realize he was right there and so there was several moments but one particular in my mind i just stopped and I put my hands up, and I, I just cried. <laughs> and it was happy cry. And all I said was, thank you, Lord, for being right here. And I just listened to the birds, and I looked at these really tall trees. 
kind of breathed in the air. How often do you go days without just a moment of recognizing who God is? Or have you ever found yourself so deeply in love with a cause, a passion, a political platform, or something that you want to be so about? And let me tell you, you're so passionate about it that it is all you talk about. And you post it on social media, and your friends are sick of hearing about it, and it's all you want to talk about. And listen, it might be a good thing, but here's what we do. We do this. We, we evoke the name of our God into our passions, and we use him like a celebrity endorsement. We're like, God's for this, and we just say his name, and we move on to make our point. And I wonder if God's like, wait, I wish you were that passionate about me, time with me. Could you just take some time with me? And don't be name-dropping to make yourself look righteous. You're the one that got passionate about this. I actually gave you some pretty clear passions, and it wasn't that. It was go find lost people and bring them to me. It was shine my light into the world. It was care for the oppressed. It was look out for the marginalized. But how often do we find some platform and we make it our life goal? I don't know how often we're going to temple shrines and handing out raisin cakes, but I'm telling you. The sin of Gomer and the sin of the Israelites is one that we're living in pretty heavy as a culture. And every time we live this way, we're acting out that same rebellion. And you know what's beautiful? God says, I am going to get my wife. And I will pay full price, whatever it takes to get you back. I just want you to know that I love you. And you might have gotten comfortable in my love for you, and you might have put me on the back burner, and you might have spent less time with me recently, but I'm going to tell you something. I haven't forgot my love for you. Our God is relentless. He's a pursuer of our hearts. And one of my favorite passages that shows this is in the book of Luke, chapter 15, 4 through 7, I think. And uh, this, is a, this is a story maybe you've heard several times. Jesus is kind of making a metaphor, but he says this. This is Jesus talking. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. You know this story? Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it over his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls to his friends and his neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Like, this story is not about sheep. It's not about a shepherd. It's about me, and it's about you, and it's about God and me, and God and you, because we are that sheep. And every single time we stray away from him, I think we have this image that God is like sitting on a big cloud with a big lightning bolt, and he's just ready to just smash us every time we mess up. But that is not God's objective. His objective is that we draw near to him. There is a day of the Lord where consequences will happen. But praise God, so far it's not been today. And he says, just come home and stay at my house for a while. And I'll treat you the same way. God loves you so much. <laughs> and you're so valuable to him. And he's seeking you daily. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is going to hit different now. I read it earlier. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves you. The question is, will you love him back? And I love this, that we don't have to love him back enough to earn his love. He said, I'll go first, and I'll keep loving. In fact, I will give you grace and forgiveness because I'm just that loving. But from that position of salvation and freedom, what do we do with our time? We can love him back. Through the way that we treat people, mercy and justice and love, through the way that we conduct ourselves, through the things that we allow to go through the filters of our eyes and our ears, the way that we serve and love those around us and shine his light into the darkest places. When you read through a book like Hosea, you're like, ooh, man, is this even for me? But I think we're going to find over the next few weeks, it's totally for you. Because we as a people have not changed that much. And our God definitely has not changed. Hosea wraps up his book in chapter 14. We're going to read a few verses of it. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. This is my prayer for you. His call to me and to you. He says, return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Listen to this. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Sometimes, you know, um, and I don't know if I can compare this to raisin cakes, but sometimes we want to, like, make deals with God and be like, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that. But words are powerful. He says, listen, when you, when you return to God, take words with you. And it's like when I'm talking to my kids and maybe they've been in an argument and one of them says, I'm sorry. And you're like, I'm sorry for, and you have to fill in the blanks. Like, this is why I'm apologizing. Take words with you. This is vital. This is the process of confession. And that's a very big part of our pursuit of God. Take words with you. This is the words he suggests. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer fruit, the fruit of our lips. If you need a prayer to pray to God today, write that down. Hosea 14, 2. It is a beautiful prayer. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. Neither can the app developers or our biggest calls or whatever it is that we put our trust and our faith in. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. For in you, the fatherless, find compassion. And then there's God's promises happen in verse 4. Look at verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. If you've ever experienced forgiveness, like really, you, you really experienced it like someone really forgave you and then like a couple of weeks later you're hanging out with them and you realize like, wow, they really forgave me. <laughs> like we're friends again. It's a beautiful feeling. I will heal your waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. And then we're going to skip down to verse 9. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The, rock, the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. The message of the prophets always comes kind of as a two-sided coin. There's always a warning on one side, but you flip the coin, and on the other side, there's always hope. And this is where we land in hope today. And this is where we always land because of the love of Jesus. There's always hope. 
Will you today flip that coin to hope and turn your heart to God? That's the question. You know, sometimes I get up here and, I, and I'll give a message and I feel like I just got to like land the plane perfectly and get it just the right words out. And like, it's like, everyone's going to be like, yeah, my life is different. But I've learned that God doesn't need me for that. Uh, his word is very convicting. <laughs> and, and his stories are powerful. And just like Hosea might sometimes have felt like, what the heck is my life? I think on the other side of it, the message that's carried on for generations is that Hosea showed us the love of God like maybe nobody else could. So there's hope, and I want to give you that hope. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know his love, if you don't know his forgiveness, I want to invite you to learn about it today. Uh, we're going to have a moment in a, just a minute where you can, you can go talk to somebody right at the back of the room. There's going to be some people back there that can just talk you through some thoughts and some decisions. Maybe you already know who Jesus is, and you're like, I'm ready to live for him, okay? I'm tired of dealing my raisin cakes somewhere else. I want to make my offerings to the living God. You can do that today. We're, we're told in Scripture that when you make that decision in obedience, you, you choose to be baptized in his name, and you choose to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful thing, and so we can talk about that too back there. But maybe for you, you've just been a little bit distracted. You've been like that spouse that's been really comfortable for a long time with God, and you realize, oh, shoot, we really haven't been talking lately. <laughs> Start today. Just return your heart to God. Two degrees, 10 degrees, 180 degrees, whatever the turn needs to look like for you. That's the call because the promise is that God does love you. How much does God love you? Well, he's shown us over and over and over. So let's accept that love every day and then love him back through our actions. That's the book of Hosea. Uh, let me pray for us today.